One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's episode was recorded live at the most recent MK3D show, the monthly show that I do at the BFI South Bank. Our stellar lineup of guests includes Kerry Fox talking about Little Joe and the film that changed her life, James Norton, star of Mr. Jones and the Trial of Christine Keeler, picking a very guilty, guilty pleasure, and J.P. Valkapar, director of the extraordinary Dogs Don't Wear Pants. Oh, and in honour of the release of Little Joe, I also do my rundown of the top ten plants in movies. Sit back and enjoy MK3D live from the BFI South Bank. I don't know about the rest of you, but I've been up since three o'clock this morning. <laughs> no, but the thing is, I wasn't, I wasn't up till three because of the Oscars, although I was up since the three, since you ask, thanks. My... His son has been away um, touring, uh, touring places that, that are very near to the coronavirus, but not quite. And he came back, uh, to, he flew into Gatwick at six o'clock in the morning. And so uh, Linda and I had to leave the house at three o'clock to get to Gatwick. So we were driving whilst the Oscars were happening and, uh, and on the radio. But so I feel like I've been up through the Oscars, although I haven't. So the show may have a slightly drunken quality to it. <laughs> I just want to assure you all that I'm completely sober, if a little bit tired. This is also, this is the 49th show, which means uh, that the next show is the 50th show, I know that's stating the obvious, and we've got an absolute bonanza for the 50th. It's going to be, so, it's going to be fantastic, and uh, we've got kind of guests from the, from the 50 uh, shows that we've done before, so very much looking forward to that. There is going to be a musical element, it's just that some of the guests involved don't know about it yet, <laughs> um, but there we go. So, uh, packed show for you tonight. Uh, let's start as we mean to continue. We've sort of been doing Ask the Audience at the beginning of the show, sometimes in the middle of the show. I think we'll do it at the beginning just because I'm kind of coherent now. I have no idea what I'm going to be like in about an hour. If anybody has anything they'd like to raise, stick your hand up. I will try my best to make sense of it. Yes, sir. And, and make it a softball, okay, because I've been up a really long time. <laughs> Me too. Okay. <laughs> um, hello. Hello. Um, I... Okay, I am going to require a bit of casting one's mind back to a review you did in December 2009. Okay. <laughs> You've lost me already, but carry yeah. on. Okay. Um, in your review of... Um... Hang on. Firstly, did you make a film and was I rude about it? No. Okay, fine, because carry on, that's good. <laughs> in your review of Avatar, you yes. commented that James Cameron had been, at one time, I, and I quote you, a proper science fiction director. Yes. So what I'm wondering is, yes. what does a proper science fiction director mean in your terms? 
That's a very good question. Um, what I meant by that was that I've always thought that the very best science fiction is kind of slightly B-movie-ish. I've, al I've always felt very suspicious of really, really big-budget science fiction movies. And, like, so my favourite science fiction film of all time is Silent Running, which was made for thrumpence. You know, it was a very, very low-budget film. It was all done with front projection, and I, and I love it. I like Dark Star. I like f films that, you know, that actually feel like they're ba based around an idea. My problem with Avatar, and actually I think Terminator is brilliant, I think Aliens is brilliant. My problem with Avatar was it did look to me like um, a format searching for a story. Because the story is, oh, we are the Navi. Oh, we like to sing and dance in the moonlight. We are probably metaphorical American imperialism or maybe maybe European colonialism it doesn't matter anyway but you know it was a little bit like that and then and then it was like oh 3D it's like it's like 2D but more and <laughs> so that was what I meant and I know that since then you know James Cameron has dedicated himself to making the next two Avatar movies and you know, the 3D thing is kind of you know it's run its course we still have 3D movies but I think everybody's basically agreed that it was a waste of everybody's time and with certain exceptions possibly gravity or something or you know uh, um, Flesh for Frankenstein I think is genuinely improved in 3D when Udo Kier pulls the offal out of the man's you know <laughs> holds it up towards the camera that's a, that's a real joy but I think that's what I meant bear in mind you're asking me a question about something I said 11 years ago but I think I'm standing up for it very well so I think that deserves a round of applause thank you Right, let's take another one. Yes, there. Um, hi. Uh, sticking with the Oscars. Yes. What do women have to do to finally get acknowledged? You know, it's... I was talking to, um, to Jack Howard, who I do... You know, we did, did the Kermit on Film podcast that this turns up as a podcast. And the first, um, the first time Jack watched the Oscars because he's a child, was in 2010, which is the year that Catherine Bigelow became the first and indeed only woman to win the Oscar for Best Director and Best Picture. And I remember then everyone going, hooray! And then all this time later, everyone going, eh? And yes, uh, the industry itself has to change. The fact that in th this particular year, you had a, you know this kind of male director's uh, category when there were so many great movies directed by women. It is, it is particularly troublesome. And I think in the end, it's, those award ceremonies reflect the industry itself, but it is depressing how slow it is. And it's also quite boring after a while because you kind of think, you know, I was looking at Queen and Slim, and I think, you know, Melina Matsukas did such a brilliant job on that film. And there were, there were just so many great chances for nominations. And so I think what they have to carry on doing is carry on making brilliant films. And finally, slowly, years, decades later, the industry will catch up. But I do think it's happening really. I mean, my partner, Linda Reese Williams, did this thing, you know, the, the um, uh, Calling the Shots report about the statistics for women in the British film industry. And they're shocking. I mean, really, really shocking. If they had in a particular key job, anyone above seven, eight percent, that was considered to be triumphant, you know. And so it is changing, but it's really, really changing slowly. And the only answer is carry on, you know, and we will all catch up at some point, but it's not gonna happen in the near future. We will come back to the subject of the Oscars, I'm sure. Um, since we last uh, spoke, uh, Kirk Douglas died. Um, we wanted to show a clip 
this is this is kind of interesting. We wanted to show a clip in which actually Kirk Douglas doesn't talk, but it's one of the most iconic clips in cinema. And the interesting thing about this, which relates back to 2001, one of the things about 2001 is it's a film in which the most sympathetic character is a homicidal computer who's trying to kill everybody. Apparently, Stanley Kubrick didn't want this scene in Spartacus because he thought it was silly. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I just love the idea. I mean, I don't know whether it's true because I mean, you know, there's so much you know about. I just love the idea of him going, no, no, that scene's not going to work. And I interviewed Paul Thomas Anderson a while ago. I may have said this before. I interviewed Paul Thomas Anderson about, well, about his career, and we started talking about Magnolia. And I said, you know, the, the scene I love in Magnolia is the scene when everyone sings Wise Up, the Amy Mann song, which, of course, famously was not written for Magnolia. It was written for Jerry Maguire. And then um, the director of Jerry Maguire didn't like it and left it off, put it on the soundtrack album, and Paul Thomas Anderson loved it and then built the whole film around it. And I interviewed him not so long ago, and I said, I love that scene. He said, yeah, if I remade that film, that's the scene that I'd cut out. And I said, why? And he said, because I'm sick of people telling me how much they like it. <laughs> so anyway, um, a few months ago, um, you may remember, I went to Strasbourg to the uh, International Fantasy Film Festival. and had a really good time, saw a bunch of really, really great movies. And it just happens that a couple of them are coinciding on the show tonight. I want to start by showing you the trailer for a film which had a really big impact. When I got there, it was the first film I saw, and I saw it in a packed auditorium. And it's one of those films that really, really caught the audience off guard. People weren't sure you know, what kind of film it was going to be because of the title. And it had a really powerful impact. And afterwards, we all went to the bar and we talked about it for a couple of hours. And I think it's a really terrific piece of work. Here is the trailer for Dogs Don't Wear Pants. Please welcome to the show J.P. Valkapar, the director of Dogs Don't Wear Pants. Thank you. Thank you. So, I think the trailer's terrific, and I think it's lovely to see a trailer in which you hear people go, <laughs> Yeah. Um, how would you describe Dogs Don't Wear Pants? Because I have to say that from my point of view, I didn't know anything about it beforehand, before the title. And I, I really like the film. I think it's really powerful. But how would you describe it? Well, I, I described it as a romantic comedy uh, <laughs> uh, to my ma main a actress. And uh, she, I think she's 
slowly starting to kind of get a hint at what I meant, but no. <laughs> I was told that you have a very dry sense of humor. Do you think that's true? I don't know. So how much, w describe for us the, the fundamentals of the story, giving away only as much as you would want somebody to know in advance. Well, it's, it, uh, may, its main character uh, is a heart surgeon, Juha, and uh, Juha's wife dies in the beginning, uh, drowning, and while Juha tries to save his wife, uh, uh, he almost himself drowns, but in this state of as asphyxiation, uh, starts seeing visions of his wife becoming alive. So Juha is saved, but uh, goes into this uh, deep state of grief, and 10 years pass, and uh, he and his daughter are living sort of inside his uh, grief bubble. Uh, and um, then uh, he stumbles into a dominatrix dungeon and uh, and gets uh, strangled and uh, the visions start to come back and uh, he starts to see his wife wife again after the all the years so the central thing about it is and I think this is really important is that there is at the heart of it this kind of this grief this tragedy this trauma and through SM he, he kind of reach, he achieves an ecstatic state in which he sort of, he transcends life and he is reunited with this lost love. That's the core of the film. Yeah, yeah. How hard was that as an idea to write about? Because obviously, I, Im immediately you start talking about, you know, S&M and things, people have certain preconceptions about what it, you know, what it, what it means. Yeah, the, the, it, it's based on another writer's original idea and, um, it was a script that had been worked for years, but hadn't had a successful outcome. So the producer of the film introduced me, and uh, it sort of started. It triggered immediately images in my head when uh, when he told the core idea of it. But it was it was very hard to get the kind of right balance for mm -hmm. the story. It was maybe a year or so. It, uh, it was very dark, firstly, and then then uh, I. I felt that it, it, it wasn't working, and, and um, I went version and versions, uh, but, uh, and then uh, I started writing these kind of dad jokes to one of the characters, just from my own amusement, yeah. uh, and uh, suddenly these, the humor started to resonate in it, and, and then I started adding it bit by bit, and, and um, then, yeah, then it became a romantic comedy. It is a really terrific balancing act between um, the humor and the tragedy. I mean, the film is, it's really entertaining, but it's also kind of profoundly disturbing, but also quite, kind of quite ecstatic. And did you look at, did you go back and look at other films as references? Did you look at like Barbette Schroeder's Maitress or Taxis on Chloe or anything like that? I, I, uh, I had seen Barbette Schroeder's uh, Maitress, but, uh, uh, but uh, I, I, I wanted to avoid uh, other movies. Uh, when uh, appro uh, approaching this subject, sure. uh, I, I wanted to uh, try to uh, get an sort of um, how, how would I say sort of authentic uh, uh, feel to the film about the about the S SM or BDSM, and uh, and um, that meant that. Um, that um, I had to go to the straight to the source. 
So I had uh, um, real dominatrix, uh, Wild Ira, her name. She had been in the professor for, um, profession for 20 years. Uh, she became the consultant for the film. And yeah, I mean, it was a very sort of eye-opening experience. Mm -hmm. uh, we went with the actors to the real sessions and, and, uh, and uh, yeah. One of, the things that's very, one of the things that's very important about BDSM is it is all to do with consent. Mm. It is all to do with, um, and I, I think that is something that often gets overlooked from the outside, is that actually it's, it's an area in which very clearly delineated lines of engagement exist, and yes. consent is the key to it. Yeah, and I think that the, the sort of, the, the most important sort of uh, thing that I, I got out of the, the uh, research was, was this kind of the central uh, idea of trust. Mm -hmm. that's uh, that's there and and how sort of um, how it's everywhere the trust I mean starting from the the that your identity is kept secret then you uh, open up all your sexual fantasies to a person and then I mean even your life can be trusted to another person and uh, I found that there was something sort of profoundly, uh, profoundly moving in a way about the, about these power di power dynamics that they, they there was something so primitive that it touched me, something uh, that reminded me the association that I got was the relationship between a, a newborn. And, uh, and, uh, and and the, and the adult, the parent, yeah. uh, and uh, and how the weak one also has power over the the strong one, but is of course dependent on the strong one to take care of, and uh, that was something that I, I felt that uh, that sort of clicked somewhere something in my head in case of this story, which is in a way about the rebirth uh, and, and uh, yeah. So I saw it at Strasbourg and I said it was a very full audience and it really played well. When did you first see it with an, with an audience and how did the audience react? Uh, the first public screening was in Cannes. Uh, it played in the director's fortnight and uh, it was, yeah, it was, it, it, it was a, uh, I think, uh, it, I mean, there was laughter, and the the end part of the film it it sort of turns into a quite a comedy. Even it has even a kind of farcical yeah. quality to it. Uh, but uh, but also uh, there were this kind of very strong con uh, con reactions. There. What's a can reaction? <laughs> it's the it's the Italian uh, Italians. Slapping the chairs and and uh, yelling, it's a disgrace. Excellent. Yeah, and which 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 is the highest honor. It is. <laughs> there is there is a thing. Just for anyone who doesn't know, there is a thing which is called the can applause, which is as people get up, the chairs go boom, and if you get like a whole lot of them, boom, boom, it's almost like yeah. anti applause, yeah. and it's fantastic. It Sometimes is. if you hear like twenty people yeah. leaving at the same time, it's really thrilling. It is. It is. 
Yeah, that's the best compliment. <laughs> and it was in the nail, in the nail scene that was in the trailer. Oh yeah, yeah. But I, I have no idea what the Italians have with the nails. <laughs> Can any anybody tell? Some any, any Italians in the audience? Well, if so, they're all remaining surprisingly quiet. I said, I've got, I've got a real thing about teeth. Okay. I mean, I so the whole, the last kind of, you know, there's the last. If you, if, if Marathon Man, you find hard to walk in the park. And when that reaction happened, did you think that's what I wanted? Because yeah. if you take a film to Cannes, that's what you want, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that definitely was, was, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, I watched Marathon Man some years ago, and uh, a couple of years ago, or four years ago, and I watched the tooth pulling scene there, and I thought that it was censored. No. But it wasn't. It was too short. You think? Yeah. You wanted, you wanted more to, tooth yeah, pulling? Yeah, then I made that one. You're now. a very sick man. <laughs> <laughs> so they say. <laughs> No, I, I, the first time I, I watched Marathon Man, I thought I was going to pass out. And when I was in the, when I was in Strasbourg watching that, and your scene does indeed yeah. take its time, and it, but it's also funny yeah. because it is, you know, there yeah. is a lot of kind of near slapstick humour yeah. in it amidst all the sort of tooth pulling. Is that is it difficult to get that balance right? Did you have to? Is it a lot of recutting to get that? Or I mean, I had I had excellent actors in the in the roles. Yeah. I mean, they are, I mean, and and not only that, they are sort of. Excellent dramat dramatic actors. They are also great in comedy. So it it's uh, it was written quite specifically. It was kind of uh, I wanted it to have this kind of symphonic structure that yeah. you go go up and you have these kind of dynamics there. So it just took time. It was um, one and a half day that we shot the whole whole sequence. Great. What are you doing now? Uh, I'm writing a um, crime film about uh, Finnish alcoholics and uh, in Costa del Sol. Uh, are, there, are there a lot of Finnish alcoholics yes, in the Costa yeah, del yeah, Sol? Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the way the fin, Finns end up uh, in, in Costa del Sol. Everybody dies of liver cirrhosis. So. <laughs> But, but but alcoholism and hey, uh, this kind of kidnapping and crime film, it's 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 good because you fuck up even more than <laughs> usual. What's your favourite film ever? Uh, I think it's Godfather Two. I think it's yeah. good choice. And what's the worst film ever made? Uh, I'm into thinking Forrest Gump, but uh, <laughs> there must be something else. Why do you hate Forrest Gump? You got a ripple of applause. <laughs> So hang on, so, so there are other people in the audience who think Forrest Gump's the worst film ever made? I like, what, what do you got against Forrest Gump? I mean, you know, I, but no, go on. Uh, I, I just hated it. I mean, it's, <laughs> everything's wrong. I mean, what, what happens to the wife? The wife is in the feminist, she's a feminist, she's in folk movement, uh, hippies, whatever, Black, Black Panthers and so on and so on. And she dies of AIDS. Uh, and what happens to Forrest Gump, who has sex with the wife? And nothing. He doesn't get the age. It's all wrong. I, I wish Forrest Gump would have gotten age. Then I would have loved it. Then it would have been one of my favorite, maybe past Godfather too. And there, in a nutshell, is... 
Uh, here's the, here's the, the, the thing with Forrest Gump, quite seriously. I, I, underst- I mean, I understand all the political arguments mm. about Forrest Gump, because believe me, when the film came out, you know, people... Mm. I kind of like it. I kind of... Mm. I think it's cute. I was an angry teenager when I saw Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I think be that now I'm a mellowed, uh, middle-aged man. So yeah, I think, I think maybe it's... Maybe I like it. Yeah, it's yeah, good yeah. that he didn't get AIDS. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know where to go with that thought at all. So. so the film opens here in March, is that right? Yes, March 20th. And will you be coming back to do, or is this it? Uh, just come I, over to do this and then you... I don't know after this one, <laughs> if they allow me, but it's, it's, uh, the distributor is uh, looking thumbs up still. But okay, I'm okay. coming back. And, and JP, it is, everyone does call you JP. Your full name is... It's Jukka-Pekka Valkeapää. JP is yeah. much easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Say it to me again. But, so, so, but, the, the name? Yes. Jukka Pekka Valkeapa. Let me have a go at it because my accents are really short. Yeah. Jukka Pekka Valkeapa. Brilliant. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. Film opens in March. Go and see it. It's really terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Great pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, uh, <laughs> momentarily lost for where we're going next. Um, as you all know, the, how many of you saw the BAFTAs? Did it, it, if any of you saw them on television, when um, Bate won Best Newcomer, right, and they announced Mark Jenkin, did you hear a woman go, ah! <laughs> that was Linda. That was my- <laughs> Because we were at the BAFTAs and we were kind of quite near the front and when it won, we were just delighted. So because the other thing that happened um, at the BAFTAs was that 1917 won both uh, Best Director and Best Film. So it's a kind of interesting thing that it won at the BAFTAs and Parasite won at the Oscars, which in a way is kind of nice that it breaks down like that. There was just a couple of things that I wanted to mention in relation to 1917. The first one is that my colleague, um, Mike Hammond, has uh, this book out, The Great War in Hollywood Memory, and just the the weekend of the BAFTAs, in fact, the day of the BAFTAs, uh, Neil Brand, who's coming on the show for the 50th uh, show, 
played a live accompaniment to The Big Parade, and it was really fantastic. If you get a chance to see that film, because clearly 1917 owes a great debt to that. Uh, Mike's book is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I know I'm in a band with him and all the rest of it. I'm not contractually obliged to say this. It is a brilliant book. It also made me start thinking about the film of the Battle of the Somme. As you know, I'm down in Exeter quite a lot, and the Bill Douglas Museum has got the camera that they shot the Battle of the Somme on. And looking at 1917 and thinking back to uh, the film about the song, which of course is fascinating because it is a documentary, but it's also a documentary which employs a certain degree of dramatic license. You'll know famously the scene of them going over the top is staged and it's kind of like Nanak of the North, that whole kind of interplay between what's completely documentary and what is restaged. Plus, if you saw the Peter Jackson, They Shall Not Grow Old, obviously they used and um, you know, uh, repurposed footage from Battle of the Sun, but it is really terrific. And if you've seen 1917 and like 1917, it's really worth checking out Battle of the Sun. It is available on a number of streaming services. You can watch it on Amazon. I don't think it's on the BFI player but maybe at some point in the future, but it is worth checking out because you can kind of see a lot of where the inspiration for that comes from, and it is, a, it is an extraordinary document. Okay, on to uh, our next coming attraction. A few uh, shows ago, we were talking about Little Joe. This was immediately after Strasbourg, because the other film that did really, really well at Strasbourg, where Dogs Don't Wear Pants won the, uh, the crossover award, was that they played Little Joe, and I absolutely loved Little Joe, and I thought it was terrific. And uh, Emily Beecham came on the show, and we talked at the time about, you know, nearer to the release, about getting another guest on. I'm delighted to say that we have another guest. So here is a clip from Little Joe, which, as you know, I spoke about before. It is a film about a genetically modified flower that may or may not be having a strange effect on the people around it. It's meant to be a flower that makes you happy, but there's a kind of lotus eaters thing going on there. So have a look at this clip and I'll get our next guest up. Will you please stop blaming little Joe for whatever was wrong with Bello? Blame little Joe? We're talking about a plant, aren't we? If anyone's to blame, it's you. Haven't you noticed how Chris has changed? No. I have the feeling he's infected too. Infected? From Little Joe's pollen. Chris will defend Little Joe at any price. And why shouldn't he? I will defend Little Joe as well, because I am responsible for him. So you're a good mother. But which of your children will you choose? Please welcome to the show the fabulous Kerry Fox. I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming. For great pleasure. Um, we have talked about Little Joe a bit before. Again, it is hard to describe because it's as much about what's implied as what actually happens. How would you describe what Little Joe is about? <laughs> um, well, it's about this woman who, <laughs> who uh, everyone believes is mad, but who may be the only sane one in the entire film. That's the same answer as for Blanche Dubois, isn't it? That's very good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great answer, though. Okay, but so, but it is—is is it a science fiction film, or is it what is it? It's it's a creepy humanist. It's female. It's a very girly film. It's a girl version of creepy horror, and where people are sort of slimy and weird, and um, 
and nothing's clear. Like, there's no, you don't know which side of the fence you're supposed to fall. You don't know what's real or what's not, what's, who's ill, who's not, if the plant is evil or it's not. So it's sort of, it's ambiguous. One of the things I loved about it, again, not knowing anything before I went in, was I did spend at least two-thirds of the film thinking the plant isn't doing anything at all. It is all in everybody's mind. Yes. And that ambiguity, it's directed by Jessica Hausner, and there is a, a season of her films happening here at the BFI. Oh, good. And I believe, um, are you coming back here to do a Q&A on the day that it opens? I've got no idea. I think, <laughs> I think you may be. If you're not, we're going to organise it retrospectively. <laughs> Describe working with her for us. I love her. I just loved every minute. I mean, she drove me in completely nuts. <laughs> in what way? 35 fucking takes of the same <laughs> Jesus Christ. One of the last ones, like, she never used a steady cam. She'd always use uh, slow tracks, and it was all very, very... Everything is completely thought out and completely precise. We did 35 fucking takes on, you know, the steady cam. The first time she'd used steady cam was on the last day, and it was Ben's last shot. I I think I might have had something else a bit later in the day. And then after the 35 takes, she decided she didn't like it. And we do the whole scene. So then they laid the track and we did another 26 <laughs> of the same. And even Ben Wishaw, who is the most gentle, most gorgeous, most beautiful man, grabbed me by my chest when we finished one of the takes. And said, Why don't they fucking hurry up? <laughs> she just goes, oh, she's very, very, she's very sweet and she's very lovely. And she says, no, Carrie, Carrie, I just... I thought it was wonderful, it was all very good. But I just, I just don't want you to have your hands here. I want you to have your hands here. And he goes, <laughs> okay, I can do that, another 25 times. And, um, and then she says, I know. Some people, I find it, um, I find that some people, when they work with me, they find it very difficult to be spontaneous. <laughs> Luckily, it's not something I struggle with. <laughs> okay, but that... That, but you say it was brilliant, but that sounds nightmarish. Well, it was nothing like... It, it was unlike anything I'd ever done, because i I've done improvised films yeah. and, you know, and, and I've, I've less and less memory because of my age, so I find, you know, retain my lines quite tricky. And, um, <laughs> and, but in this case, it was like the precision was... was she, I loved the way she just knew what she wanted and she made the film she wanted and that is so rare, that is almost impossible in my experience and she was such an inspiration to me, she made, gave me the confidence, well then I went and made my own film after that, you know, she sort of didn't as know a what As a result of working yeah. with her? Yeah, yeah, it was a final kick up the bum that I needed to, you know, to, to say I can be directorial. <laughs> or sort of dictatorial, whichever one you want, <laughs> or manipulative, or all those lovely terms you want to use with great directors. People always talk about, uh, this is the third time we've invoked him so far, but people always talk about Kubrick taking scenes again and again and again and again. And it's not considered to be crazy, it's considered to be perfectionism. Do you think there is a part of people looking at a woman director as opposed to a man and saying if a woman director does something 40 times, it's, it's different? Um, I wouldn't know. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of prejudices against women directing. I think the hardest thing they face is um, the condescension uh, from uh, from people around who want to, you know, mansplain everything or this idea that they don't really know 
the technical and the you know they're not on they're not all over everything that I think I see that a lot um, and I see the way different women play with play that like there's no point being confrontation say I know what I'm doing I know you know you have to allow these people men to say what they want to say so that then you can go move on you sort of you know but you can't ignore them and also with other I thinking with other women too I've got a specific uh, example of mind where a woman who wasn't very, wasn't so sure of what she wanted, but her method was different. Mm -hmm. She's a great filmmaker, she's a great producer as well. Her method was to get everybody to deliver all their ideas and she'd go, that's good, that's good, that's good. And what I realised, we were working with a number of women on that and high profile roles in that, but the men, the men wanted her to say, your idea was the best, you're the best one. They, you could see them, uh, the, pick me, pick me, pick me, you know. See, and, I, and I really observed that was, that was the response they're used to getting. Yeah. And so for a woman to then appear to be uncertain or wishy-washy or not be sure of what she wanted, she was, it was considered a negative thing. Whereas what that director then had was this massive amount of option in the edit, you know. There, but, there are certainly different processes, you know, and I'm not saying they're particularly only women do this or only men do this, and, and I think a lot of the great male directors have enormous female qualities who, you know, this sort of digging into human nature, and, you know, but, but, I, but women do face condescension. There was a question earlier on. No, actually, I'll let that run. There was a question earlier on about what do women filmmakers have to do to get recognition? Do you think things are changing? Well, the statistics show no. I mean, I think, uh, I think, I think, I feel there's a push for uh, backing, for finance, for support. Um, I think we need more female film critics. Um, well, that is absolutely that's true. Significant. Um, I often think about this a lot, about why women find it so hard to drink, drink, <laughs> direct, <laughs> um, to direct, and I think it's to do with, with youth, my, you know, I think young boys, I can say that because I have two young boys, when they do something they just, they just, you know, when they're 19 and they make a film, you know, they don't, they just do it, you know, they don't, they don't consider the risks or what might go wrong. I think that women, girls, um, are, t are very concerned about what may go wrong. They, they're forward planning, that you know. And I think that's a real hold up in the creation of film. Yeah, it yeah. sort of puts the brakes on things. Um, and I don't know whether that's cultural or gender or all, um, but I, I see that as, as a reason why it's a, it's a women held back for their own well and also fear because I had to well for me working with Jessica I worked around that time I did Jessica's film I worked with seven female filmmakers in a row bang 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 and they you know phenomenal like Billy Piper and other oh, amazing activist in Australia called Miranda Tapsell and I, you know others and um and I really had to think why has it taken me so long to do something I've so much wanted to do and and fear it's fear of um of being the boss, you know, I am a bossy person, as my friends know, and also, you know, often on set, my nickname is Scary Fox, 
<laughs> is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, because I don't take any bullshit, it's not that I, you know, I just ask the questions and I don't, someone says, you know, I need to, you know, a push and want things to be really good and hard and tight. And, um, and then, so I had to look at me and why is it that it's taken me, and it was because I, it, was a, it was confidence, like I knew I could do it and when I finally did it I was, I was so thrilled and so happy and so assured of myself because of seeing all these seven women, like on that evidence, and I thought, realised that I had all of that in me. It's, it's confidence, it's, yeah. and that's in. Can I take you back many years, back to uh, to Shallow Grave, mm -hmm. which I remember seeing, because you'd worked with Danny on Mr. Rose yeah, Virgins yeah, yeah, beforehand. Yeah. And, um, and I remember seeing Shallow Grave uh, for the first time, I mean, just think, being really knocked out by it, both because of the simplicity of its premise, but also the complexity of it. It is a film which you can watch over and over again. Do you mind if we show a clip Love from that. Shallow Grave? Because yeah, I think yeah. it's a really, it's a, I imagine everyone's seen Shallow Grave. If you haven't, get up to speed. <laughs> Emergency. No. Just think about it. No. Come on, David. No. Juliet. No, Alex. It's, it's what? Unfeasible. Was oh, that all? You mean immoral. I don't know what I mean. Look, I'm only asking you both to think about it. It's a sick idea, Alex. It's sick. Yeah, but don't tell me you're not tempted. Don't tell me you're not interested. I know you well enough. Oh, you think so? Go ahead then, telephone. Telephone the police. Go ahead, no one's gonna stand in your way. Telephone them, tell them. Tell them there's a suitcase full of money and you don't want it. I love about that scene is actually all the dialogue is happening with with eyes and faces. I mean, there is dialogue in it, but that's yeah. not what's telling you the story. And there's all that other stuff, like me, me lying in the bath. I remember Danny saying, I want you to look like you're lying in a bath of water, of <laughs> money. <laughs> and the knives behind Chris, you know, which I hadn't ever seen before. I didn't realise. Did you, was it a, a positive experience making that oh, film? I loved it. It was great. It was really, because I... I had I had this other experience with Danny, and we made this TV series, which I really adored making as well. It was tough and adventurous, and Did Mr. Rose Virgin never be made now. And um, and this, and you know, we talked about wanting to make a film together, and then he, he posted me a letter asking me to do it. You know, which I got 85 months later in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, um, and then we just had a great time. Really, just it, you know. I knew from watching the rushes that it, it was really going to be great. It was just really. And apparently that flat, it's big. It's it's bigger than it should be. That the whole set design is. M yeah. So the whole idea was the flat was another character, and it was in a studio. But of course it wasn't a studio. It was a shed. And then you know all the rookie problems that we had that it was built on because we had to be underneath for the underneath floor scenes. It was built on you know with not much money on really rickety. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wobbling, noisy. So every time we moved, it was like a pain to 
moves the dolly, <laughs> sound, nightmare, blah, blah. I loved the film when it came out, and um, I, got, uh, I got given a, a shallow grave shovel, an engraved shallow grave <laughs> shovel. And I've still got, I've got very few bits of mem movie memorabilia, but it's one of the things I'm most proud of, because I think it's such a great I want to show a clip now from, um, from Intimacy, which was, it is such an extraordinary piece, you and Mark Rylance, and what's your, what's your memories of making Intimacy? Because it was... It, it was really sort of well received at the time. It was front cover of Sight and Sound, and it was. A, it was. A, what, what do you remember about making it? I don't remember it being well received in the UK. I remember it being well received in other places, and you know, I think the timing was very difficult. I th it, it, it was released in America two weeks after 9/11, so it sort of right. it just died basically, which was incredibly disappointing. Um, I, I. I'd been speaking to Patrice Shaw from a long time before he finished the script, and so it was the, the working on this idea of, that he first came to me with, with, not the script, this idea that he wanted to make something that was a, about a truthful relationship that was expressed through physicality. That, you know, and I felt that's what we made, which was really great. And obviously, you know, working with Mark, who's so, such an extraordinary act, and, and, and Tim Spall as well, yeah. and, and then Marianne Faithful. The grief, you know, <laughs> that was exciting. Um, uh, yeah, it was. Um, this it was full of memories for me. It was intense, obviously, but but I felt very strongly that I wanted. It was about changing, change. I'm so sick of seeing this this bullshit representation of of intimacy on screen, and I knew that I wanted to effect change. Okay, let's have a look. I thought that perhaps you'd said something at one point that I didn't hear, and that's what you're holding against me. Listen, I don't understand the first thing about you. How can I hold anything against you? Did I miss something? What did I miss? Well, then ask me something. Anything you like. Go on, I'll right, now. I'll ask you something. Why did you tell Andy? Since it wasn't all that important anyway. It wasn't worth it, was it? Well, it fussed for nothing. Still, I don't know, maybe that's how it works between you two. You tell him each time and then that's it. <laughs> I mean, for you know, you weren't like someone who you asked to drop by, who comes by and fucks and goes and just for the thrill of it. W what was I meant to feel? What was I supposed to be like? Who should I have been to keep everyone satisfied, just to come and see a man and bury myself in his arms because I wanted to? It had been a long time since I wanted someone. And it was with you I wanted to start again. I'm not supposed to say that usually, are you? You've had such an extraordinary body of work and through so many, you know, different moods and films. And we asked you to choose a film that had inspired you, a film that you found uh, inspirational. And your choice surprised me, actually. Not because I don't think it's a brilliant film, but it's, I, I hadn't expected it. What did you choose? Drive. So there's a very specific scene that you chose. We'll talk about that in a minute. Tell me when you first saw Drive and what it was about it that struck you. Oh, I can't remember the first time I... I'm not, I don't, I'm not very good at holding on to films. Like, I, I watch them, they don't stick in my what? mind. They just, it's not my, it's not where my memory sits, you know. So 
now I realise I must have watched it like four or five times, and even, even when I was watching it before this, I, I still have my fantasy version of the ending, which is entirely different from the actual ending. I sort of think, oh, oh but that's not what happens. It's sort of like, you know, so it's more the spark of things. I mean, the reason I chose it for, for this is because I just felt that so many of the, the images were really, like, useful to me for what I was wanting to make. And... I that I love the structure that the I, well the the framing and the the intensity and the eyes and the and the cross hatching and the and the colours the orange and the blue and the not saying anything and the incredible like in, in the scene that I've chosen this intensity between the two performances there's just so much is revealed and the vulnerability his. Um, Ryan Gosling's vulnerability in it is just so moving and, and, and it just makes the hairs on my whole being trigger when I, um, when I see it. I don't know, really. No, that's great. So, so, look, so let's see the film. I think what's relevant, again, is it's one of those things in which nothing appears to be happening but everything appears to be happening at the same time. And I think that's it kind of, for me... There was a comparison between that and the shallow grave thing in which it's not what's being said, it's what, what isn't being said. Anyway, have a look. What do you do? I drive. Like a limo drive? No, like for movies. Oh. You mean all the car chases and stuff? Yeah. Isn't that dangerous? It's only part-time. Mostly I work at a garage. Where? Receded Boulevard. So do Just you, like they fall in love. And then he stamps on somebody's head. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you see echoes of that now, therefore, in your own work, in your own directing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I took great strength from that. From lots of the... Um, my love of the actual cinematography, basically, and the music, the confidence in that. That's, That's the big thing with Jessica's film, actually. That gave me a huge boost of confidence in my own decision making about music and composition and and how to pull all that together because yeah. her and in, in um, Little Joe it's so wild and made me laugh so it's, yeah. Well she uses yeah. that, the Tejito stuff which is completely yeah. mad and brilliant yeah. but, but almost got totally contrapuntal which is yeah. you know which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So look, thank you so much for coming. So Little Joe comes out uh, in the not too distant future, and what's the next? Billy yes. Piper's film, which is out when? Don't know. Rare Beast. She's going. She was at um, Gothenburg. She's going to South by Southwest with it. I don't know what's happening with it actually. Okay. I'd be interested to see the response from that. I think 
My, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I, I really love it. I, when I read the script, it was like something I'd never read before. It's so visceral. And, um, you know, hopefully there will be women criticising it okay. who won't label it hysterical, <laughs> but rather true. Kerry, thank you so much. It's been really great having you on the show. And uh, would you come back when whichever of the next films comes out, comes out? Sure, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Kerry Fox. Thank you. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you. So we were doing very quickly, uh, off the back of uh, Little Joe, which I may have mentioned is coming out quite soon, we decided to do a top ten sinister plants in the movies. Now, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, some of the plants aren't that sinister. But it was, you know, it was like, okay, fine. So, top ten sinister plants at number ten, The Evil Dead, bad things happen in the wood, plants come to life, BBFC end up getting the film banned for five years under the Obscene Publications Act. At number nine, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Now, I know technically people say it's not a plant. Well, they're pods. Pods, you know, cocoons, plant. I think it counts as plants, okay? Thank you very much, because we were stretching ourselves somewhat. Um, at number eight, I don't know how many of you will have seen this, shrooms. Yeah? Have you seen it? No, it's an interesting film. It's about shrooms. People take a bunch of... You know, shrooms, incidentally, is... It's young people speak for mushrooms. Um, <laughs> it's a hallucinogenic... Tripping out in cinemas. Actually, it's a, it's a really interesting film, which I really liked. Although I did have to go, what's a shroom? Oh, I see a mushroom in front. Um, at number seven, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> because there is actually an entire character that is a plant. And there aren't many of them, although we did find another one. Um, at number six, Wally. -E. So the whole of the first act of Wally -E with the thing with the plant and the thing, which is, it's the MacGuffin in the film, but it is the centre of the film. And also, Wally -E is essentially a remake of a film which is going to turn up slightly higher up in the charts, which is one of my favourite films of all time. Um, at number five, and this was the most difficult one, Leon. <laughs> Big plant movie. You've all seen Leon, right? <laughs> that was Nick's. That was the best of all the suggestions. Uh, at number four, a film which b didn't play in UK cinemas, Annihilation. <laughs> Definitely plants. Uh, Barack Obama had it on his list of the favourite films of the year that it came out. Over here, it was largely seen on uh, streaming services, although apparently it did play a couple of uh, engagements, I think, at the Prince Charles. Worth seeing on the big screen because it's absolutely brilliant. Um, at number three, Thing from Another World, starring James Arness as a big carrot. This was why, because when they remade it, you know, John Carpenter said, well, now we have all this polymethacellulose and, you know, these kind of acetates and things in which we can do special effects. I still think James Arness as the big carrot is really impressive. At number two, the film of which Wally -E is clearly a remake, Silent Running, greatest science fiction film ever made, made by um, Doug Trumbull as a response to having worked for several years on 2001 and deciding that he'd like to make a film that had some people in it that you could actually like. And plus, you know, it is entirely plant-based. However, number one, best uh, slightly scary plant movie of all time, and we have a clip for you, just in case you didn't believe it. Now, you may th say again? Wait! 
just pretend you didn't all shout that out. And then when it comes up at the end of the show, act surprised. Can we get a non-cine literate audience? Because sometimes it's like, they don't need me. At number one, thank you for bringing it up. Now, I saw Day of the Triffids when I was at school, okay? And it scared the bejesus out of me. And I hadn't seen it since I was at school. And I said to Nick, can you get a you know, good scary clip? I realized that times have changed, okay? <laughs> Look at this extraordinary special effects sequence. No expense spent. <laughs> Day of the Triffids. I'm sorry, but it is absolute genius, isn't it? Okay, uh, moving on to our next, the movie that opened uh, on Friday. Uh, here's a trailer from it. I think it's a really interesting film. I reviewed it on the Radio 5 show on Friday. This is the trailer for Mr. Jones. Here's the agenda now. I don't have an agenda, unless you call truth an agenda. Yes, but who's truth? and the others come forward. What's being done here will transform mankind. We can still do something. No. We cannot let Stalin get away with this. What do you expect me to do exactly? The Soviet Union is not the workers' paradise that was promised. It is not the great experiment that you read about in the press. Stalin is not the man who you think he is. He's saying there's no hope. Please welcome to the show, James Norton. How are you doing? I'm all right, how are you doing? Very good, thank you so much for coming on the show. So, working with Agnieszka Holland, yes. what was that like? Wow, uh, where do I start? A, a, a privilege? Um, I, uh, surprise, I'd, I'd known a bit about her work, not a much, I mean, I imagine far less than most people in this room. Um, but she did not disappoint, my God, she is a power, and she uh, is getting sharper and more powerful and more opinionated. I had as much fun off set, off camera, as I did on. I mean, it goes without saying, she's a master of her craft, she's a beautiful filmmaker. She, she seems at the age of 71 to continue to kind of break new boundaries and explore and experiment as if she's at the beginning of her career. Um, the time we had off, off camera, off set was just also a joy. We would be holed up in these bizarre towns in North Ukraine and it was the beast from the east and we're like rattling the shutters and we'd be sort of sitting there with a bottle of vodka and a plate of herring and she would just... Sounds like my, my kind of heaven. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Friday night. She, she would just... Get, she got so impassioned because Brexit had just happened and it was all kind of, it was just a very hot, I mean, not that any time is not charged right now, but it was a particularly charged time and she was just an inspiration to listen to um, and disagree with and fight and argue with, but a joy. I loved it, I loved her. Tell us about the story of Mr. Jones. I mean, we've seen the trailer, but what's it about? 
So it is about a young journalist uh, who was 29 years old. It's a true story, or inspired by true events, I should say, because there are a couple of moments we take artistic license which have been picked up by the family subsequently, so we should uh, recognize them. But um, yeah, it's about this uh, young boy, a young man called Gareth Jones, who in, uh, he had previously, previous to the film, he had managed to kind of ingratiate himself uh, onto Hitler's plane, the Richthofen. He was this kind of young, very serious, bespectacled Welsh journalist, spoke lots of languages, incredibly intelligent. Um, and so having been the uh, foreign advisor to Lloyd George, was then uh, fired and became a kind of self-defined uh, investigative journalist. Having interviewed Hitler on this plane, he then decided that he wanted to interview Stalin. He spoke Russian and knew that something wasn't right. The yeah. world was looking at the communist experiment, hoping that it was going to work because the crash of 29 was screwing everyone. And uh, he knew that something wasn't right. So he basically got to Moscow and then went rogue. And whilst all the other journalists were confined to, to the city, he went and managed to get a train to Ukraine and walked through the villages and, and, and discovered the Holodomor, the Russian famine, discovered uh, millions and millions of people were dying because of collectivization and the five-year plan. Uh, and because of the propaganda machine coming out of Russia, no one in the world knew about it at all. And he went back to the UK, having been caught, tried to tell everyone, no one believed him, because everyone wanted Russia and the communist experiment to work. He basically was the first man at the age of 29 to blow the whistle on the Soviet Union. And uh, it took him a year to get the journalist to believe him. And then the day before his 30th birthday, this is all at the end of the film and it's all on Wikipedia, he, uh, he went to Mongolia and uh, was, was kidnapped by a tribe and, uh, and they think now that it, the tribe was hired by the Soviets and they shot him on shot him. The his day. guide was a Soviet agent, is that exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he how, died the day before his 30th birthday. How much of that story did you know before the film came along? Absolutely nothing. And this is the embarrassing thing. I mean, I don't know, I would love to know anyone, uh, apart from through the movie, uh, if anyone knew about Mr. Jones, Gareth Jones, because I did not. And he is such an extraordinary figure. Um, because he died at the age of 29, I think he really hasn't had the kind of attention and the celebration that he deserves. Um, what's even more embarrassing is that I didn't know much about the Holodomor. I mean, they, historians estimate between three and some say 12 people sort of settle around the kind of four or five million people, but that's how many people died. And, you know, we spend all our school years and, and sort of later on just looking at the Holocaust, and rightly so, but very, very little attention is, is put on the Holodomor. And, you know, a lot of the international communities still don't recognize it as a genocide. Lot still. I mean, Russia denied it happened entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know that that this is one very very few films which is about the Holodomor, and I, I'm very embarrassed to say that I knew very little about it before. So how did you how did you get the part? What did what was the quality that you brought that Agnieszka Holland saw that would, that you were right for the role? Other uh, than your weighty um, historical knowledge <laughs> of the subject. <laughs> um, well, I think she wanted. Well, I know, I know, I know that someone dropped out, so that's the first time. Oh, I didn't know that, <laughs> yeah, which is great. Yeah, well, more fool them, um, more fool them. I can't even remember the name of the guy. So you and McGregor. No, it's, I, I've got no. I've just said that. I've got no idea. I've got, I just. No, no, no. Um, I, I think what we discovered quite early on is that she wanted someone. Uh, she wanted someone who had that kind of boundless energy. <laughs> Maybe that, yeah, that sort of Labrador quality that I have. Um, <laughs> She wanted someone who... I have never heard anybody describe themselves as having a Labrador quality. I think that's really impressive. Everyone in my life describes me Labrador, so I mean, I've just taken it on, taken it on the chin. Um, yeah, he... I think, I think he... We, know, we, need, we need someone who 
was very, very uh, serious and earnest, and um, he basically, you know, paid the ultimate price, lost his life for the pursuit of truth. He is the ultimate investigative journalist as, as far as the modern world is concerned. But he also had a kind of gentle, slightly gauche quality. You know, he, he, a couple of the, well, some of the more um, interesting and, and valuable research, because there's lots of books, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's all the research you can do, and there's always mad, mad research you can do. Often the most valuable stuff is the, is the one letter which you have from his great aunt, describing him with his nieces and nephews, and he's sort of crawling around the floor, and he's having a lovely time, and he's, a, he's this kind of big kid. And, he, and, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to whether he fell in love, and we don't think he really did. So on the one hand, he's this very, very intelligent, very earnest, very sort of principled man. And on the other hand, he's a kid, and he's on a bit of an adventure, and he's an adrenaline junkie. Um, why she came to me? I don't know. Maybe some a weird uh, mixture of those things, I guess. I think that the thing that I really liked about the film is that I, I did know the history thing. But actually, the way the film tells its story, you discover it as he does. And even if you know, it it does a really good job of just unfolding as he discovers things. And actually, when you get into the the sort of the third act, when he finally finds out what it is that's happening, it is still shocking and horrifying even if you kind of knew it was coming from the beginning and you've gone through all those decadent scenes in Moscow which are kind of like you know pre-World War II Berlin almost yeah. and I think that and the you know the way that the colour palette changes from the, those warm colours to the terrifying coldness of the Ukraine I mean I thought it worked as a, as a really uh, a really effective thriller as well now it, that's not the only film that you've been in that people will have seen recently you were in Little Women and what was that like? Oh, I mean, again, to talk about working with some amazing filmmakers, uh, Greta Gerwig. Who should have been nominated for a Best uh, Director Oscar. She really should. I've been listening to this conversation this evening about you know, why it is that women have not been recognised. It's an interesting question, which has often actually been thrown my way recently, because having worked with some incredible female filmmakers like Agnieszka and, and Greta, um, it's funny, I, I, w- I was... It was a lovely role because I managed. I was able to sit. Uh, John Brooke spends a lot of time on set. You know, he's he's part of the story, but he is a quieter, more reserved presence. So he, I was able to sort of basically spend my time as John and James on set, kind of bearing witness to the, this master, yeah. and Greta and and Saoirse and Laura Dern and Meryl Streep. And, you know, it was amazing. And I, yeah, I, I, I. What's a shame is that. You know, you never really get to know why Greta is such a masterful director. I mean, she has taken a beautiful, very sort of loved book, which everyone has an opinion or a version on in their head, and done something unique and timeless and, and relevant. She's inspired a generation of young women in a time when we're all trying to kind of do our piece in a very uncombative way. She's done it in a way which is celebratory. It's the most sort of positive act of feminism I've seen of late, and, it's, and it was such a privilege to be part of that. But, that. but that aside, her work on set as a writer and a director, you know, lots of people assume that you know, the Greta Gerwig signature, which she managed to protect whilst making something which I think was quite new for her. Um, everyone sort of assumes that it's all kind of a bit thrown together and a bit mad. You know, there's scenes where we're all kind of in the, having Thanksgiving or Christmas. Absolutely, everything is down to an absolute detail. Those long tracking shots where she's weaving in and out and, you know, you've got Bob Oldenkirk fucking around and everyone would have to cut because, you know, we have to go back to the beginning. Like, she, she has, she knows exactly what she wants. She comes in, she's so prepared. She works 
so hard. She was pregnant throughout this film. She created Little Women whilst creating a human being. Um, didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell anyone until the ADR, and I heard this like gurgling sound. On. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. I, why she wasn't recognised is, is, is a real, real shame. That thing you say about um, I, my colleague Jack Howard said this thing, and I think it's absolutely right that she create she she commits the great crime of making something really complicated look effortless. Yeah. And therefore, the amount of people who look at Little Women think, well, it kind of of course that's how it would do. you know that 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 sense of chaos and camaraderie. Of course, that's completely natural. So th- I think that's what it is. It's that it doesn't look forced. It looks so fantastically natural she, that it kind of gets overlooked. Yeah. It's not like 1917 in which you're aware of the technical complexity of it. Yeah. And you, and you know that it's a Greta Gerwig film, but you don't ever feel that she's putting herself front and centre. And someone, actually a journalist offered this to me in an interview recently, and I, I, it sort of stayed with me, but he was like, Does, is it that female directors don't want to do that or don't need to do that? Is that, you know, their hubris is ever so slightly different? And you know, you've got, the, he, he compared the scene when um, Saoirse drops the letter over the river to the scene in the, the Irishman where the gun falls into mm. the water. And there's something about the long tracking shot landing with the gun and the Scorsese kind of thing. It was very much a sort of moment of beat, whereas Greta just let it happen. And I don't know what he, it's, it's his opinion, and I'm not going to hijack it, but um, something in line with that, which I found interesting, was that you know, my, my girlfriend and lots of act- actresses who I've worked with and talk about this with often complain, and it's always, you know, it's often the thing, understandably so, my God the role is the girlfriend or the guy, you know, it's the girl in relation to the guy all the time. And I was potentially that, you know, m- myself and Louis Garrel and Timmy to a point were... Um, Timmy. Sorry, Timothy. <laughs> Timothy, whatever you want, Timothy, is it? I don't know how you pronounce I it. I don't know. I was kind of hoping you would have... Timothy. Timothy. Chalamet. <laughs> I don't know. How do you say... I, oh, Timmy. That's stra- it. That's yeah, solved yeah. it. Now fine, Timmy. I couldn't do Timothy because I kept thinking shampoo. I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's the girl with the sun in his hair. That's it. It's just, it's just, you know. um, but we were the guys. We were the, we were the guys who were playing in relation to the girls. Yeah. And, and she had every right, really. In a way, it's like the kind of whole question, the kind of conversation around objectification. Like, in a way, I wouldn't have minded it had we come on set and I was playing the, the Emma Watson's husband and I was the guy, you know, that, playing the girlfriend role. And actually, the opposite happened. We turned up for the two weeks of rehearsals, and she was like, we need to, we need to honor your roles and explore them and investigate them as much as we do the girls. And she, there was, no, there was never a hint of you know, letting the guys just be, which I think was just, I don't know, it was this incredible testament to her thoroughness and her care and the way she just brought everyone in and included us all. I, I never felt, it was amazing. You've also been involved in a very high-profile recent uh, history case uh, that people will be aware of. It was a film before. Let's have a look, have a, have a look at the clip. <clears throat> at the risk of sounding like a broken record, you could do a lot better for yourself than Johnny. Thanks, Dad. Chrissy, look at you. Your face is your fortune. Notting Hill is not doing you any favours. Your age, with your connections, my connections. Oh, not Mandy. I was I once a bit of a laugh and enough spare to keep my mum off my back? <clears throat> all, not alls. All. Eddowes, though. Cash to burn and an eye for a pretty girl. You know the drill. You can have your cake and eat it. Oh, you never eat it. It's like watching everyone else stuffing themselves. (laughs) 
crumbs everywhere. <laughs> Kinky sod. Hmm. It's a terrific piece. I mean, television is now virtually indistinguishable from film in terms of production values and everything, isn't it? I mean, it's, that's just seeing that projected. That could, I could have been showing a clip from a feature film. I know, I noticed a little bit of TV slip through the net, which is um, lovely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, recently it's been, it's been very clear and, and, and it's really, really exciting, the kind of fluid uh, sharing of, of talent, writers, directors. You know, um, McMafia was, was a wonderful experience because James Watkins had only really ever done... Hussein Amini and James were a pair of filmmakers and they came and they had... Uh, they made an eight-hour movie, basically, and it was great. Such exciting thing to be a part of because you get the same sense of support and uh, and opportunity, and yet you you have the eight hours to explore. And uh, you know, by the end of those eight hours, you have that character's second nature. Having said that, there is always that kind of understand. You know, rightly, uh, there's a sort of mystique and a sacred. Thing to that telling of a story in an hour and a half to a unit, and I think that should always will always be the way. And I, yeah, um, it's an interesting conversation to be had right now, particularly. We know that um, the press is full of a lot of tittle tattle, and I don't want to be any part of that. So you you officially denied. <laughs> the, yeah. This is going. I can't. I can't guess. Come on. What's the story? What's the story? Because because as soon as somebody says I'm absolutely not being Bond, you go, is he? Because I don't want to say. I mean, if I say how, where did it come from? Where did it come from? I have absolutely no idea. I think I think what happens is when when you're on the telly or whatever, you're doing a movie, and there's and there's a bit of sort of press around it. Um, the, the, the journalists who are, they, some journalists literally write about this every single day, and they just pick whoever it is, and, and they create it because it's brilliant clickbait. But I promise you, it is them who's great. They are creating the story, not me. Um, I think they must be in cahoots with the bookies. I have no idea, but um, it, it's, it's, it's very lovely, bizarre, fun thing to be part of, and you know, I, every few days my little sister or my friend calls me like, is it true? I'm like, no, it's really not true. <laughs> so, um, it's, I, I mean, I don't think if I say no, it's like, yes, it, yeah. I, mean, I just love the idea that the Bond producers sat around here, you know, next time I think we need somebody who's more like a Labrador. You know anyone's like a Labrador? <laughs> <laughs> it's a direction, I mean, yeah. interesting directions. Uh, we asked you to choose a guilty pleasure. Right. And, uh, and God bless you, you did choose a guilty <laughs> I did, pleasure. I guilty. What is it? I, re I was immediately worried about it afterwards, but it is properly good. And also, you mentioned also, do you go back to it? I don't go back to this, but yeah. it was something which as a kid I had on VHS and I loved. It is um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Thank you. Okay, tell us about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. What's not good? Like? It's got Brian Blessed in a big robe uh, <laughs> and um, Alan Rickman. Cancelling Christmas. Alan Rickman cancelling Christmas with one of his best ever performances. He does, and cancel Christmas! With the epic line of, you know, uh, cut your heart out of the spoon. I mean, you know, Kevin Costner gives the, the weirdest, most bland kind of, I don't know if he's American, English, no one quite knows, he doesn't care. Um, and yet around him are this, just this incredible kind of tapestry of performance. Nick Brimble playing Little John, who I just, I got to work with Nick Brimble years later in a TV show, and he walked on set, I, I fell over, it was starstruck. Or, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I actually hadn't seen it for years, and we watched a clip earlier, and it's so fun, it's so cool. Well, should we, should we have a look, because it is, it is so fun. Go on. I, ch I challenge you all not to get tingles, because it's... <laughs> Roxley! 
begins. I love most about that is that Rickman turns the word close into a four-syllable word. Close! <laughs> and also there's the, the famous story that in, it's Kevin Reynolds who directed it, isn't it? Um, and, and that when, they, when the first cut was assembled, Costner looked at it and went, no, Alan Rickman is stealing the show. You have to, you have to take some of him no. out. But yeah, because, because that's what everyone thinks. Everyone thinks it's an Alan Rickman film that happens to have, you know, Kevin Costner and his terrible hair. Yeah, terrible hair. <laughs> Every, and Morgan Freeman. I mean, Christian Slate is in this. Yeah, everyone and everyone. Do you, do you go back to it? Is it a? I will now. I mean, I haven't for a long time. Uh, it's one of those ones where you're sitting in, as like yesterday with that horrible storm on a Sunday. Going, what should we watch? And there's always a little part of me going, "Robin Hood Prince of Thieves." Should we? <laughs> it's been there for about 15 years, and I haven't gone back. But um, there was a time. My sister had the Sound of Music, and I had that on VHS, and it was always a fight to which we had. And and the Sound of Music is not a short film. The Sound of Music no. is f- four hours. No, I think she won as well because I remember every single fucking word to every song. <laughs> so she must have won the battle more than me. I think. We had somebody wrote into the radio show who'd been to see The Sound of Music twice and they didn't understand why people liked it because they thought the interval was the end so they literally watched it twice and it ends with the Nazis and then that's the end of the film I think the thing about A Guilty Pleasure is it, it's, it's definitely something that gives you joy and you've watched that clip twice this evening and oh. both times you've gone like doesn't that doesn't give everyone joy though, I mean it's a joyful clip yeah yeah it's true, it definitely takes me back to being a little boy and uh, yeah, wanting to be Robin Hood I guess well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I would urge people to go and see uh, Mr. Jones and uh, obviously Little Women, which I think is still playing in UK cinemas now. What else are we going to see you in next? Uh, I have a... a, a Apart from Bond. <laughs> um, there's a, a very, very sweet movie I'm very, very proud of. Uh, Alberto Pasolini, who um, was yeah. the producer behind Full Monty and others, and Still Life recently with Eddie Mars. And he, which is a lovely film. That is a film. great and underrated film. He's a fantastic director, and he only directs once every ten years when he feels he really has to. He's written this beautiful film. Um, it's, it's currently called Nowhere Special, but I think he's going to change the name. So I can't give you the name, but it's an Uberto Pasolini film, and it's basically about myself and a four-year-old boy and a young father who's dealing with cancer, and he's finding a foster home for his kid before he dies. It's very, very sad, but we had an incredible, incredible time filming it. So that'll be out sometime uh, this year. Right. We'll come back on the show when it's out. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. on the show. Thank you. Really, really love it. Thank you. Thank you. So, just time to finish off the show with our usual sound and music feature. And I know it's going to come as a great surprise to you all. (laughs) Here we go. You didn't have nothing till you met me. Come on, kid, what will it be? Money? 
girls. One particular girl. How about that, Audrey? Think it over. There must be someone you can eat a six real quiet like. And get me some lunch. Well, there we are. I hope you enjoyed that. That was the most recent MK3D show recorded live at the BFI South Bank. The show happens every month. It's been going on for four years. And our next show is our 50th anniversary bonanza. If you like the sound of it and you want to come along and see it live, then why not go to the BFI box office and check out the tickets? But do be warned, tickets sell out pretty fast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, tell your friends. And why not visit our Patreon page, which has a load of extra content including some exclusive video content thanks for listening remember to subscribe and keep watching the skies Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.